is Lesson 184A, Thursday Dark to Sunday Dawn, Part 1. All right, we've already had a word of prayer. Thank you, Terry. And so would you open up your Bibles, please, to Matthew 27, and also would you find Isaiah 60? And just keep a finger there, so when we go to Isaiah 60, you're ready to flip, and then we can flip right back to Matthew 27. We will spend most of the morning in Matthew chapter 27, finishing it up. Well, as we have seen in every single lesson of our long extended study of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is absolutely nothing trivial about his life. Was there anything trivial about his earthly life? No. Nothing trivial about his passion on the cross. Nothing trivial about his death. So, would we expect less for his burial and his resurrection? Where would we be without the resurrection? There'd be no Christian faith without the resurrection, so I can guarantee you We are going to be talking about the resurrection for a long time. When we think about the fact that every single article and every color and every piece of furniture and every design and even the material, the material that was used for the tabernacle was given, the instructions were given by God how to build the tabernacle and every little detail of it. And the tabernacle, remember, was a pattern of that temple which is in heaven. And God told his people to pay particular attention to every detail when it came to the tabernacle and obeying all the the rituals and everything surrounding the tabernacle. Why? Because it pictured the coming incarnation of his son. So since he was so detailed and concerned about the tabernacle, would we expect less when it came to the temp, the true temple, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ? No, of course he is very concerned about the temple of his son, the body of his son. And when you add to the fact that he is concerned about that body, even when it's dead, and that not a bone be broken in exactly how that body is buried, add to the fact, that fact, that the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the three tenets of the gospel message. Right? We called it a trinity. The gospel consists of a trinity. That Jesus died for our sins according to the gospels and he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scripture. That's three parts. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. So you add those things together, and of course the the gospel is the good news, isn't it? That brings salvation to the soul of the person who's willing to put their faith in that truth. Then we see why it is so important that you and I have confidence in that burial. Was Jesus really buried? Yes, we need to have confidence in that. And we get that confident assurance from eyewitnesses. Those who were there those who observed it, and those who, in one way or another, were involved in it. Some of them, even his enemies. And what do we do about these witnesses? Or what do we know about them? What do we do about them? We believe them. (laughs) What do we know about them? We know that they were all credible. We can trust them. 
because they were sovereignly chosen beforehand to be witnesses of these vital tenets of the gospel message. They were chosen by none other than God himself. Now, it was interesting that last week we went back to Acts chapter 8, or we went forward to Acts chapter 8, to look at a unique situation. Well, not really unique, because God does this all the time. But there was an Ethiopian eunuch who was reading Isaiah 53 and couldn't understand it, so God the Spirit sent Philip to him. Well, in Acts chapter 10, God sent Peter, the apostle Peter, to a Roman centurion who lived in Caesarea, and his name was Cornelius. He was a devout man who feared God. In other, way, in other words, he had been proselytized to the Jewish faith. He left the pagan gods of Rome, and he came to faith in the true and living God. However, he did not know about Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ. So God sent to Cornelius Peter. And Peter shared with Cornelius and a whole house full of people, Gentiles, that Cornelius had invited to his home. And they all heard the good news about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And Peter told all of those people that he was seen in his resurrected glory by witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God himself. That's in Acts 10.41. He was not seen by all the people, was he? There wasn't a single unbeliever who saw the resurrected Christ. But he was seen by those divinely chosen beforehand by God. They were his chosen witnesses. From the testimony of the men who were also divinely chosen to record the four gospel accounts, and who were those four men? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know from them that the Lord first appeared in his resurrection glory to Women. Don't you love it? (laughs) He first appeared to women, not to the apostles, not to men. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene. And then soon thereafter, he also appeared to the other Galilean women, which included Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. These were the women who saw where and how the body of Jesus Christ had been buried by Joseph of Arimathea along with Nicodemus. There is no record, is there, that any of the apostles saw where Jesus was buried? I'm sure if any of them had been there, one of the four gospel men would have told us that. Now we know John was there for part of the crucifixion, but apparently he left and went back to Mary to comfort her, Mary the mother of Jesus. So none of the apostles saw where Jesus was buried. They had to believe the witness of the women, didn't they? I am sure that the women shared with them where Jesus was buried. The women had the most credible witness. They knew exactly where Jesus was buried. And it wasn't that far from Calvary. Very close. Therefore, get this. They did not go to the wrong tomb. On Sunday morning, they knew where Jesus had been buried. Now, I did mention other women who had also observed where Jesus was buried. In addition to the two Marys we talked about last time, 
there were other women who saw where he was buried. And that might confuse you because when we did end our lesson last week, we only mentioned the two Marys who watched the entire burial. And then even after Joseph and Nicodemus left the scene, left the tomb, they lingered there for a while, didn't they? I'm sure they were weeping and, and crying and maybe planning, you know, what they would do, come back after the Sabbaths. So what I want to do before we actually read the scripture is bring together the facts of when you put all four scriptures, uh, gospels together. Um, let's put everything together because it does get really confusing, especially on Sunday morning. There's so many trips that are made to and from the tomb that it can get kind of confusing. So I want to synchronize this for you. Um, there were also many women who went to the tomb that had been with Jesus during his Galilean ministry. They ministered to him and to his men. How do women minister to men? Food. You got it. Food. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure they prepared the food for the men, and you can guarantee they also did the washing and the clothes and all that sort of thing. And we're also told in Luke chapter 8 that some of them were wealthy and they ministered out of their sustenance. They helped financially. And, of course, since they traveled with Jesus for probably several years, they heard him teach many, many times. Not just the messages we have in the scripture, but they were with him 24-7, and don't you know he was always teaching? As they're sitting around the campfire at night or whenever, they're hearing him continually, continually teach. And they witnessed many of his miracles over and over again. They traveled with him when he came down to Jerusalem for this final pass, the final Passover of his life. And they observed, observed at a distance, remember? Um, this is in Matthew 27:55. They observed at a distance the crucifixion. They heard him deliver all seven of his cross sayings from Father, forgive them for they know not what they do to Father, I, I commit my spirit into your hands. They, they heard it all. They saw it all. The three hours of darkness, the earthquake, the graves opening. They were there. Now, Matthew and Mark tell us that the two Marys, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of um, James the Less, who was one of the apostles, and Joseph, we don't know much about Joseph, but she was their mother, that they had followed Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Well, Joseph probably is the one that took the Lord off the cross and took him maybe with servants or Roman soldiers to the, to the tomb. They followed him. They had like a funeral procession to the nearby tomb, and they observed Christ's burial. That's what Matthew and Mark tell us. And likely they were weeping as they sat there watching. But they, they would have, um, I'm sure they would have liked to have helped the men. I'm sure, as we said last week, I'm sure they were thinking, well, you should do it better this way, you know. They would like to help, but they would not approach two prominent religious Jewish men. And um, especially while they were washing and wrapping a naked male. They honor Jesus by their presence, but they, just as at the cross, they keep a respectful distance. Isn't that interesting? Even at the cross, we were told that they were afar off. He was hanging there, likely naked. And so they honor him with their presence, but they respect him by keeping a, a distance 
from him suffering like that and then being wrapped up in his burial clothes. Now, based on the sequence of both Matthew and Mark, it appears that these two women remained alone at the tomb after Joseph and Nicodemus left. They saw the two men roll the great stone in front of the mouth of the tomb. Now, they wouldn't know anything about a Roman guard in a sealed tomb. They did not know about that because that doesn't happen until early Friday morning. Now, we're going to read in a minute from Luke chapter 23. And only from Luke do we learn about another group of Galilean women who had also, with the two Marys, followed that funeral procession to the tomb. These were obviously the women referred to in Matthew 27:55 as being the many women who beheld the crucifixion of the Lord from a far distance. Let me just read you that passage to remind you. I know you're all going over to Luke, but let me read to you Matthew 27:55. It says, "And many women, this was during the the crucifixion, and many women were there beholding afar off which followed Jesus from Galilee ministering unto him. These were women who, along with Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, had followed Jesus for years. They're all Galilean women. They followed him, ministering to him. And it would be this group of many women, many, who Luke tells us also went to the tomb. However, they did not stay as long at the garden tomb as the two Marys. They observed the sepulcher, the garden tomb. Uh, they made a note, of course, as to where he was buried. And they also observe, observed, I mean, having trouble with that word today, observed how he was buried. They watched that. But then they returned to wherever they were staying in Jerusalem. Now, they're not from Jerusalem, so they don't have homes in Jerusalem. We're told, we're going to read it, that they returned to do what? Prepare spices and ointments, further further spices for the Lord's body. They returned to wherever they were staying while they were in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And I don't know if that was in the upper room. I don't know if it was over in Bethany with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. I don't know where they stayed. But they returned to that place in order to f- prepare further spices. Why? Well, the men didn't, you know, do enough, did they? 75 pounds <laughs> wasn't enough. <laughs> so obviously, while they were at the tomb, they made plans with the two Marys to return to the tomb after Friday, which was the high day Sabbath, because it was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then after the regular weekly Sabbath, which would be Saturday, When those two Sabbaths were over, they would return to further prepare the Lord's body with their additional spices and ointments. Was this necessary? Do you really think that the Lord's body needed more than 75 pounds? And the scripture says 100 pounds, but in our weight, it would probably be more like 75 pounds. But isn't that quite a few spices? Yes, I'm sure he smelled really good. So the women wanted to add more spices. Why? Why? Why did they want to do that? Because they were women, you know? <laughs> and they, you know, they, they always have to add to man's work, don't they? <laughs> they were women, and they had been 
Right. They had been ministering to the Lord for years. And, you know, it's just in our nature. You're ministering and you want to keep on ministering. You know, they loved him. Exactly. They loved him and therefore they wanted to do one last thing for him. Even if it wasn't necessary. I don't know what they were planning on doing. Obviously, they weren't going to unwrap him. I guess they were just going to put those spices on top of him, right? But they never got to do it, did they? (laughs) By the way, the work of the women in preparing the burial spices indicates that they were not expecting a resurrection of Jesus' body on the third day. Do you get that? They were not expecting a resurrection. These were good women. These were godly women. But they, as yet, had no faith in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is part of the gospel message, the most important part of the gospel message. Even though we can be sure that they heard him predict his resurrection many, many times. There are at least seven times recorded when he said it to his disciples that he would suffer many things at the hands of the religious rulers who would turn him over to the Gentiles and he would be crucified, but on the third day, he would rise. They had heard that I don't know how many times. Many, more than seven, I can guarantee you. And uh, also, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and the apostles all also give evidence that they were not expecting the resurrection. Do you think Joseph and Nicodemus would have wrapped him in 75 pounds of spices if they were expecting a resurrection? No, I don't even think they would have wrapped him, period. Just leave him there. One of the great and wonderful proofs of the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection, is that the witnesses of it were so shocked and surprised by it. It was too good to be true, they even said. And when some of the women came and told them, no, no, they didn't believe them. Thomas didn't believe until he saw with his own eyes, did he? That's one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection. Well, when the Sabbaths were over, the women did indeed return to the tomb. However, to their immense surprise and great delight, they did not need their spices to help cover up the stench of death. Why? Because death had been swallowed up in life. He wasn't there. No more myrrh for the Lord. You remember, myrrh was brought to him at the time of his birth, or when he was about two years old. Wise men, rich wise men, riding in on camels, had brought him gifts fit for a king. And one of those gifts was myrrh. Why myrrh? Well, myrrh means bitter. And it also is used in dealing with the dead, and spicing up the bodies. Myrrh is the word from which we get martyr. Why did they bring it to him when he was born? Because he was born to die. Same thing given in the swaddling clothes, you know? That's what they wrapped him in, strips of swaddling clothes at his burial. And when was he offered myrrh mixed with vinegar? At the time of his death, as a narcotic. Of course, he refused to take it, but he was offered myrrh on the cross. And then he was even buried in it, in his death, by other wise, rich men. But when these women came with more myrrh and aloes and spices, it was no longer necessary, was it? The death was gone. 
And do you know that when the Lord returns at the time of his second coming, here's where I want you to go over to Isaiah 60, would you? When the Lord comes again and sets up his kingdom and rules this world from Jerusalem, did you know that there again will be rich men, Gentile kings, wise men, who will come from all the nations of the world riding upon camels to present to him their gifts. They will fall down before him and present them with their gifts. And what will they offer him? Let's look at Isaiah 6, 60, verse 6. It says, The multitude of camels shall cover thee. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba, shall come. They shall bring what? Gold and incense. And they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. What is missing? The myrrh. No more myrrh for the Lord. He came and died once for all. Isn't that beautiful? Did you know that about the men on the dromedaries? You know what a dromedary is, right? Yeah. My, my little eight-year-old grandson, he loves animals. I'm sure it seems like a boy thing to just love animals. So he called me the other day to tell me, Grandma, do you know what a dromedary is? Yes. Did you know that they have two sets of eyelashes? No. Yes. Yes, Grandma, that's so they can help keep the sun and the sand out of their eyes. I said, oh, that's cool. One goes up and one goes down, the eyelashes. Um, and then he said, they can drink 30 gallons of water at a time. Wow, that's a lot of water. I'd be spending my whole time in the bathroom. And they can hold in their humps, if, especially if it's a double camel, <laughs> they can hold up to 800 gallons of water in their humps. And therefore, I want to tell you this, if you need survival and you're in the desert and you are dying of thirst, you can kill a camel and open up its hump and drink the water in the camel's hump. I said, thank you, David. That's really important. <laughs> I am so glad you told me. That. I'll remember that next time I'm in the desert dying of thirst. <laughs> All right, let's look at what Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us about the late Thursday night watch of these women. We'll start with Matt. I think I'm going to skip Mark for time's sake because he says exactly what Matthew says, and we did read this last week. But let's look real quickly at Matthew 27, verse 61, where all it says is, And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Now, we knew that. We talked about that last week. But here's something we didn't read. Will you turn to Luke 23? And let's look. I explained this to you, but now we'll actually read it from the scripture. Luke 23, verses 55 and 56. It says... And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after. They followed after uh, Joseph taking the Lord's body to the tomb. They followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. I believe these women left early because they needed to get back before the sunset so that they could prepare their spices, buy their spices if they didn't have some, and then prepare them. So they didn't stay as long as the two Marys, all right? Now, the women we just read about will be among the first to whom the resurrected Lord Jesus appears. They were witnesses. Think of this. These women 
the two Marys and this group of many women. We don't even know all of their names. We know some of their names from Luke chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, I think it is, or 2 and 3. Some of their names were Salome, um, Joanna, and Susanna, and then, of course, the two Marys. But there were many women. One day we'll learn their names, too. These are important women. Why? Because these are witnesses. Think of this. These ladies were witnesses of all three aspects of the gospel message. They were there for his death. The whole time they stayed there. They were witnesses of his burial. And they were also the first witnesses of his resurrection. These unnamed, some of them named, some of them unnamed women, are very, very important. Their entire association with the Lord Jesus was divinely designed to create credibility to the facts of the gospel message and Christ's resurrection. They are important women. Very important. Can you think of any men that were there for all three aspects of the gospel message? I couldn't. Some of them were there for one thing and some for another, but none of them for all three. What does this tell us about women? You know, the men come and go, but the women, <laughs> steadfast, right? Faithful. They're with him from beginning to end. And they were rewarded for it. Don't ever think that the Lord doesn't see everything. He knows their names. He saw their faithfulness. And how did he reward them? They were the first ones to see him in resurrected glory. Can you imagine such a reward? Wow. If we are not prepared to trust God's chosen witnesses, there is no possibility for us to have faith in Jesus Christ. Did you know that? We weren't there. We have to believe his witnesses. We have to believe the ones he forechose to write the gospel messages to us, the four gospels. We have to believe Paul, who wrote 13 to 14 books of the New Testament. We're not sure about Hebrews. I think he probably did write Hebrews. But we have to trust Paul, don't we? And you know in Acts 9.15, I think it is, it says, God speaking, the Lord speaking, he says, Paul is my chosen vessel to share the gospel with the Jews and the Gentiles. Mostly the Gentiles, because the Jews hated him, didn't they? Because <laughs> he had been one of them. But he was God's chosen vessel. If we're not prepared to believe the witnesses that God chose to tell us about his son, how would we come to faith in Jesus Christ? It's futile for us to try to grope around with our own thoughts about how things were or how salvation should be. Is that what man tries to do? Yeah, come up with his own ways. How This is how I think it should be. Or this is how I think it should not be. Just one way. One way. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the way. Isn't that a little intolerant? It's futile for us, for people to, to think in their own minds how it should be. It is vain to think that God should do something more in order to persuade us and to gain our attention and trust. 
than what he has revealed by and through his witnesses, his chosen vessels to gain, to um, tell us the gospel message. It's his purpose that his witnesses persuade us. And he has inscripturated their testimonies for us in his word. You know, when people respond that that's not sufficient or that's not reliable and that to their own sin-cursed minds, I had a brother-in-law like this. He came up with his own ideas about what should be and what shouldn't be when it came to salvation. And I said, well, you're just trusting your own mind. And your mind is cursed from the sin, from sin, sin cursed and a depraved heart. So you can't think properly if you don't trust God's witnesses and God's word. You know, we come up with all sorts of vain and foolish ideas about how things should be. People think there should be something further or um, uh, something perhaps more trustworthy than God's divinely inspired word and his four chosen witnesses. But let me remind you that when the Bible is taught, as it is here in this study, when it is preached in your churches, and when it is opened and you're just reading it at home, did you know that it is accompanied by the Holy Spirit who gave it? And that is what makes this a breathing book. Did you know that? You can almost see the pulse of this. This is a living book. It is just as alive today as it was thousands of years ago when Moses penned the first chapter. Do you know that? It is alive. It's never antiquated. And it's accompanied by God the Holy Spirit. It is the power of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. You know what that word power is in the Greek? Dynamite. You open this book and dynamite. It's dynamite. It's living. So when people refuse the testimony of the scripture, which is applied to their hearts by God the Holy Spirit, they are resisting God himself. You know that? Is God's grace irresistible? No. People can resist it. And they do resist it. That's why Jesus said, I would have you come unto me, but you would not. Yes, People can resist God's grace. He is the author and he is the finisher of our faith, isn't he? Hebrews 2.12. He wrote it from his sinless mind. He came up with the plan of salvation and he finished it, didn't he? He did it all. We don't need to add anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ. God's spirit, the power of his persuasion is sufficient to bring anyone to conviction, and to faith in what Jesus Christ has done so that he or she might receive the free gift of salvation. It's for everyone, anyone and everyone. And a resistance to that, a refusal to accept that and to demand something else or something more is nothing but willful unbelief. It's putting one's own thoughts and ways Above God's thoughts and ways. He says this in Isaiah 55, 9. He says, as heaven is above earth, so are my ways and my thoughts above yours. And to put your own thoughts 
about how it should be above God's is what? What do we call it? Pride. Same sin that started it all with Lucifer. That is pride. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of destruction. God has told us clearly that it is not his will that any man should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He so loved the world of mankind. He's no respecter of persons. He so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to die and to be buried and to resurrect on the third day exactly exactly as he had foretold in the scriptures. But he has said that all those who will not believe are condemned because they will not receive the record through his witnesses that he has given of his son. And let me tell you something, because you're going to hear this more and more and more. It is prevalent out there in the world. Persecution against us is heating up, if you haven't noticed. And it isn't going to get any better. And if the Lord tarries, it's going to get really bad. And I say, bring it on. Because it's going to purify the church. People are going to get off the fence and get serious about their Christianity. But let me tell you, it is not arrogant to believe God when he promises salvation to those who will put their faith in what Jesus did for them. It is not arrogant to believe the witness of his credible, divinely forechosen witnesses. It is not arrogant to have confidence in such statements as John wrote in 1 John 5.13. Here's what he said. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know ye have eternal life. It would be, I gave the example yesterday, okay? It would be like as if I was going to have this great, big, wonderful party on Saturday night. I'm going to have a feast. You're going to do the cooking, not me, all right? I just opened up my house. <laughs> We're going to have a feast, and it's going to go on for a thousand years, and then on into the eternal state. Wow, that's quite a feast, all right? So I send out my messengers and they are all of our leaders here in Bible study. And I ask all the leaders, please send out word to every woman in your group that they are invited to this feast. Now, some of the ladies in your group might say, well, I don't believe you, Terry. I don't believe you, Kathy. I, you know, I don't believe you, Catherine. I don't believe, you know, that you're a credible witness that Catherine really isn't going to have a party. I don't believe you. So you don't come. You don't come. Okay. That's your choice. You don't come. You don't believe, so you don't come. Now, a lot of the others, however, especially in this group, you believe your credible little leaders, right? Tall leaders. <laughs> you believe them. Wow, Catherine is having a party. Let's go. And you come. And we have a wonderful time. And we feast for a thousand years, and then we go on into the eternal state. Because you believed the witnesses, the messengers... Does that make you arrogant? No. Why? I mean, that doesn't make sense. But is that what the world is telling us? That we're arrogant because we know we're saved and we're going to join the Lord in the marriage feast of the, of the Lamb for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom and then we're going to go on into the eternal state? That's not arrogance. Without faith, it's impossible to believe, to, to please God. Remember Abraham? Abraham believed, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. 
The truth of the matter is that it is arrogant not to believe God and his divinely chosen witnesses. Well, enough of that. The burial is a wonderful part of the good news that was observed by credible witnesses, and it is their testimony that helps assure us of the genuine reality of his death on the cross. It's significant that the word, the Bible, tells us that it was not merely Jesus' own followers who bore witness and testimony of his resurrection. God saw to it that in his spectacular way, the way he works is so amazing, but he saw to it that Jesus' enemies also bore unwitting testimony to his resurrection. Even though they didn't see him resurrected, not a single unbeliever saw the Lord resurrected, but yet they gave unwitting testimony to his resurrection. How? By making sure that his body was as secure in the grave as possibly could be made by both leading religionists and leading politicians of that time. So now let's go to Matthew 27 and look at verses 62 to 66. We're finally ending up Matthew 27. We've been in that chapter a long time, long time. All right, Matthew 27, look at verse 62. Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver, who are they speaking about there? Jesus. That deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure. Notice they're commanding Pilate what to do. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as ye can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. That's not a watch like this. They set a guard in front of the stone, all right? Matthew is the only one of the gospel writers who was inspired to record anything about the next day, the day after the day of preparation, which was the Passover day. So this was Friday, okay? This is the only thing we really know that took place on Friday, the high day Sabbath, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Nisan 15. On this day, we find out that two very unusual events took place. Now, the first one is not recorded for us, but it is obvious that it took place. There was an emergency council session of the chief priests and the Pharisees. You see, somehow the religious rulers got word that Jesus' body was not disposed of in the normal way. It would have been their expectation that his body would have been taken down from the cross by the Roman soldiers and it would have been hurled into the Valley of Corpses, which had become known as Gehenna, where the bodies of crucified criminals and street beggars who died and, and other, you know, quote-unquote riffraff, people they considered riffraff, were dumped. That's what they expected to have happen with Jesus' body. And I'm sure it happened with the two thieves. But we can be sure that when the... When the news reached their ears, 
that this had not been the case at all. In fact, two of their own council members had buried his body in a very respectable tomb, a garden tomb, a rich man's tomb. We can imagine that these guys, the chief priests and the Pharisees, were infuriated. And I am sure that they felt like they had been betrayed by two of their own, two of the most prominent and wealthy members. I was thinking about how Judas betrayed the Lord. Now they felt like they were betrayed. But they became desperate to make sure that there would be nothing further that they would have to deal with concerning Jesus of Nazareth. You see, the first thought on their minds was that an unguarded tomb would make it too easy for his disciples to steal his body and then proclaim his resurrection on the third day as he had promised. So they had to do something quick. So even though they were not to hold council sessions on the Sabbath day, especially a high day Sabbath, yet what did they do? They held a council session on the high day Sabbath. After all, remember, they were not to have council sessions during the night hours either. And what had they just done the previous night? They had three illegal trials to condemn Jesus and even went out and got bought themselves some false witnesses. They were the master hypocrites, weren't they? Telling others what to do and yet always making exceptions for themselves. And again, it just goes to show us that it was not the breaking of God's commandment about honoring the Sabbath that they really cared about. You know how they were always, during the Lord's ministry, they were always trying to catch him and condemn him about breaking Sabbath rules, weren't they? Oh, you're letting your men eat some corn on the road, and you healed a man's withered arm on the Sabbath day, naughty, naughty, and you know, it's, it, you can't do good works on the Sabbath. They're not concerned about the Sabbath. And then, by the way, the Lord never broke his own law regarding the Sabbath to keep it holy. He broke, broke man-made laws about the Sabbath. But uh, it was their own self-interest that mattered. And they used the Sabbath rules, most of which they came up with themselves, as an excuse when it benefited them. And likewise, they broke the Sabbath rules when it benefited them. The previous morning, you remember, Thursday morning, they would not go into Pilate's praetorium because they did not want to defile themselves so that they couldn't eat the Passover. They wouldn't set, I mean, and that was a man-made Sabbath rule that you couldn't mingle with the Gentile or you'd be defiled, and they wouldn't do it. They were acting all holy and pious. They couldn't go into Pilate's praetorium, and yet they were condemning the Lord of the Sabbath to death. But now that the Passover meal is over, they meet secretly with Pilate to pursue pursue Jesus, even on a high day Sabbath, pursue him even beyond the cruel death to which they had already subjected him. Jesus is dead, okay? Chill out, guys. He's dead. But he still poses a serious problem to them, a threat. And so they will not rest back-to-back Sabbaths or not. They will not rest until they can do all that they possibly can do to secure his burial. So consumed with worry that Jesus, even though dead, will continue to have an influence that would be even worse in their eyes than his influence when he was alive, this group of men go to Pilate. 
requesting that the sepulcher in which Jesus had been laid be made secure. Now, because they need Pilate's help, do you notice how they addressed him? You see again their hypocrisy? How do they address him? Politely, sir. Now, they hate his guts. (laughs) They do. They hate him, and he knows it, and he hates them. Isn't it interesting? (laughs) All the animosity going on. Do you think the chief priests, who were Sadducees, loved the Pharisees? Oh, no. That's what we have going before Pilate. The only time we ever see those two sects of of, um, Israel's religious rulers coming together is when they're trying to deal with Jesus. And here's a case, okay? They hate each other. They have completely different doctrines about things. They hate each other. The Sadducees hate the Pharisees. The Pharisees hate the Sadducees, okay? They all hate Pilate, and Pilate hates him. (laughs) But they all come together against who? They all come together against Jesus, even a now dead Jesus. You know what? The world still hates Jesus. Have you noticed? I don't care how diverse the world is out there. They will all come together to hate Jesus, even though they say he's dead. Isn't it interesting? Why do they get so uptight about a man they say is dead? Hmm, think about that one. Maybe it is because you can't just tip your hat at Jesus. You gotta bow the knee. You gotta bow the knee. So they're against Jesus, even though he's dead. The religious rulers are hypocrites to the nth degree because they are again doing what is expedient to get what they want. They call a man they despise, sir. They call an evil man, sir. Pilate was evil. He had just condemned and knew it, an innocent man to death. But they call him sir, and yet they call the perfect man, God's very son, that deceiver. Do you see how upside down the world gets things? Same way today. And how much more accountable are false religious shepherds, such as these men, who twist the minds of their followers by their hypocrisy and by their false doctrines and their disbelief. These men were the deceptive ones. They're accusing Jesus of being the deceiver, but they're the deceptive ones. Hadn't they hired false witnesses? Do you know what they're going to do when Jesus resurrects from the dead? They're going to bribe the Roman soldiers to tell a lie. Who are the deceivers? They are. They are. But people that think that people that are deceivers, they think that because that's the way they think and that's the way they are, that everybody else is just like them. So they figured that the disciples of that deceiver would be deceptive. And so they would come in the middle of the night and try to steal his body from the easily accessible tomb in order to perpetuate that deception by then proclaiming to all the fulfillment of his third day resurrection. Now, as I mentioned, these rulers were very frustrated and humiliated over the fact, which would soon become well known, that two of their most prominent and wealthy members had been deceived by Jesus. That's how they would think of it. They had been deceived. 
And that was not a good omen to them. Because it suggested that even in his death, he might continue to have a substantial following. (laughs) Amen. Does he? How many of you, 2,000 years later, follow Jesus? (laughs) They were right. They were right. Now, I want you to notice how the Holy Spirit was at work here, hammering this to us, hammering this point about making it sure, making it sure for us to know that Jesus was secure in that tomb. Because in verses 62 to, or excuse me, 64 to 64, three times we are told that the Lord's enemies, not his friends, his enemies made absolutely sure that that tomb was secure. Three times, if you read, they talk about making it sure, making it secure. Only Matthew now records these events. Remember, His primary concern is for the evangelization of his own people, the Jewish people. He is telling the Jewish people, look, your own chief priests, the leaders of the Sanhedrin, and the most scrupulous of all of your sects, S-E-C-T-S, the Pharisees, came to Pilate, breaking the high day Sabbath, in order to get Jesus secured in that tomb. He's saying, you get that, people? Jewish people? It was your leaders that made sure his tomb was secure. Why did they have all this anxiety, these guys, these religious rulers? What was this all about? Well, let me tell you what it was not about. It was not about his resurrection. That was not what they're all uptight about. The chief priests were Sadducees. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees believed in resurrection, but they believed in it in a far future time, you know, way down the road. Um, None of them, none of them believed that Jesus would actually rise from the dead. Their concern is not about his resurrection. Their concern is about deception, and that's how they state it. In those terms, verse 63, that deceiver said, while he was yet alive after three days, I will rise again. Now, I wonder how Pilate felt when he heard this for the first time. He had never heard that Jesus said he would rise from the dead on the third day. And remember, he's had a private conversation with Jesus, and he was spooked during that conversation. Because Jesus had told him that his kingdom was not of this world. And when Pilate had said, don't you know who you're speaking to? I have power to release you or condemn you. And Jesus had said, you would have no power at all, except it was given to you from above. And then remember, his wife came in and she had had a dream. And she said, do nothing to this just man. He was already spooked. And now he hears for the first time that Jesus said, I will rise from the dead on the third day. No wonder he wanted, gave them permission to secure that tomb. It scared him. What they're implying, however, the Jews are implying to Pilate. Now, they don't know about his conversation with Jesus, all right? They don't know about Claudia's dream, his wife. Um, but they're, they're implying to him that Jesus, although dead, could be a worse threat to Rome than when he was alive. <clears throat> because the gullible multitudes might come to believe in his kingship They'd believe that it was verified by his resurrection. 
<laughs> and then they might truly revolt against Rome because they would think that their Rome would have absolutely no power over a resurrected, invisible, invincible king. So that's what they're trying to suggest to Pilate. He could be more danger to Rome if this deception is carried through and they steal his body and say he rose from the dead. Then he was a threat to Rome when he was alive. And notice this additional fact. What the Jews were requesting here <clears throat> is only that the sepulcher be made secure until the third day is finished. They make the point to Pilate that if his disciples come and steal that body away, the last error or deception will be worse than the first. What they mean by that first deception is that he claimed to be the Messiah and that he claimed to be even the Son of God, equal with God. They say that the last deception would be that he rose from the dead, as he said, on the third day, and the consequences of that second deception would be far more serious and far more difficult to deal with than even his claims to being the Messiah and the King of Israel. Their concern, you see, is not about the disappearance of the body eventually. This is important. Their concern is that that body might disappear before the end of the third day. Because if Jesus, if his body disappeared on the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, that wouldn't matter, would it? It wouldn't matter because it would disprove his own word. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up. On the third day, he said, you know, he gave the sign of Jonah as Jonah was in the belly of the fish. I will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, in the heart of the earth. So they're all concerned about that body not disappearing until the third day was finished. Those Roman guards were not going to stand there for weeks and months. They were only going to stand there till the end of the third day. Isn't it fascinating to realize that the Lord's enemies were more aware of the Lord's prediction of a third day resurrection than his own followers were? Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. Well, Pilate's response was positive. <clears throat> he gave them a Roman guard to secure the tomb. And in that day, the sealing of a tomb entailed the use of a strong cord. And that cord was wound around the big great stone called the Golel. And in this case, it was a great stone. We're told it's bigger than most, all right? So a cord was wound around that stone, and then the ends of the cord were attached to the walls of the sepulcher with wax. So each end of the cord had a, uh, a piece of wax or, or clay, you know, to hold it up there. And this side had the wax. And then in the middle where they wrapped the cord around the stone, in the center of the stone holding the cord there, was another big glob of wax or clay. And then imprinted into the center of each one of those three would be some kind of a sign or symbol from Pilate or Rome. And the reason that the Jews wanted Pilate to put soldiers there and to secure the tomb is because to break a Roman seal would be a serious matter and it would lead to crucifixion, wouldn't it? So it was to be a greater deterrent than putting temple guard, their own people there. They needed, they wanted Rome behind it, behind all of this. So what we have is a double bolting of the great stone. The guards are there to ensure that the seal is not broken. And the seal is there 
to to guard that the, the Roman soldiers themselves don't do you know enter into that tomb and do something with the body. It's as secure as it possibly could be. And it's going to be that way for three days. And the religious rulers, once it's done, probably breathed a heavy sigh of relief, thinking that at long last, their long ordeal with this thorn in the flesh named Jesus of Nazareth was over. Finally, went back and, and, and could rest for the rest of that Sabbath and the next day Sabbath, thinking we have done it. There's no way anybody can take his body. But it was like a tiny cork trying to hold back a volcanic, volcanic eruption, wasn't it? It's was so silly. I just picture God in heaven thinking, how ridiculous. You know, his son, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, one day is going to receive from his father's hand the title deed to this earth, which is sealed with seven God-imprinted seals. And he's going to break them right in a row. Do you think that some puny little Roman seal is going to keep the lion in the tomb? How ridiculous. How absolutely ridiculous. So here is what we have seen so far. All right. Um, regarding the burial of the Lord. Two prominent Jewish religious rulers who to this point have been fearful to fully identify themselves with Jesus. They suddenly come out of their secrecy prepared to lay their position on the Sanhedrin council and all their riches on the line just to bury him. Isn't that amazing? They're willing to give it up, all of it up, just in order to bury him. By the fact that they wrapped him up and put all those spices on him, they are not anticipating a resurrection. They don't think he's going to resurrect and then they're going to get to sit on his right and left hand. And uh, then uh, there's many women who, unlike those two men, had been open followers and they had observed that Jesus was buried in the customary Jewish way, you know, the wrapping and the spices, but not for a crucifixion victim. They saw that his body was put into a chamber hewn out of solid rock, not buried in the earth in a shallow grave or thrown onto a heap of corpses, or even under a pile of loose stones so that they could easily, you know, his body could easily be removed and taken away in some kind of a deception in the middle of the night. But he was buried in a solid rock tomb, and a great stone is rolled across the mouth of it. And soon thereafter, the women didn't know this, but soon thereafter, it's wrapped around with a cord and it's sealed with an official Roman imprint. And Roman guards are placed there, men who know that if they fall asleep, they would die. And the irony of it all is that the Lord's disciples were probably seriously off hiding somewhere, questioning whether they had been the ones who had been deceived all along. Could we have been wrong? You know, they had all put their lives on hold. They had given up their occupations. They had left their families in order to follow Jesus. And they had loved him with all of their hearts. And they believed in him. They believed he was who he claimed to be. Could they have been so wrong? Those two days of Sabbath rest for the disciples. Can you imagine how despondent they were? Those were the two most depressing days of their lives. 
If only they had remembered John 14 and the words that he had given to them. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. They forgot all about those words, didn't they? And there they were, I'm sure, wherever they were, they were dealing with their grief and having lost the most wonderful man they had ever known. The most selfless, fantastic, amazing, gracious, kind, loving, miraculous man that they had ever known in their lives. And they really believed that he had come to establish the kingdom of God on earth. So they were dealing with their sorrow. They were also dealing with their guilt and their shame at having abandoned him at his greatest hour of need. And they would be dealing with their anger at Judas. He's dead, but they're angry. How could he have done such a thing? And how could we have been so blind to his true character? And they would be dealing with their anger at their own religious establishment. And likely, as they're dispersed in different locations for security reasons, they're also dealing with fear. And we know this because on Sunday when they're gathered in the upper room, it tells us they were fearful of the Jews. They didn't know whether the Sanhedrin council was sending out people to arrest them. Maybe because it was two Sabbaths, they would wait and then go find them on Sunday. But they're also dealing with fear. So their emotions are just all over the place, aren't they? Grief, uh, shame, guilt, fear, anger. The very last thing on their minds was to plot how they could go and take Jesus' body and hide it somewhere. You see, to steal his body would not erase their sorrow, would it? Of course not. It wouldn't erase their shame or their anger or their fear. Not one single bit. Deceiving other people would not help their own sorrowing hearts. It was absolutely, positively the last thing on their minds to go and steal his body. And it's actually rather funny that the purpose of the Jewish leaders in getting Pilate's permission to put a seal on the tomb and to set a guard of soldiers to watch over it was to prevent the Lord's disciples from perpetuating a hoax with his body before the end of the third day when none of the disciples had even an inkling of an idea to do such a thing. And they all seemed to have brain freeze when it came to remembering his prediction about a third-day resurrection. How else can you explain that all of them forgot about it? It just amazes me. <laughs> yeah, a selective hearing. But the providential hand of God was at work, wasn't it? He was using the unbelieving antagonism of the Jews to serve as even greater proof of the reality of his son's resurrection. It was the Jews working with Pilate who made it impossible for the Lord's body to have been stolen. Is that not cool? His enemies made it impossible. So you and I can have absolute assurance that body wasn't stolen. They made sure of that. The evidence is considerable that Jesus truly was buried. And his burial, burial was for a stipulated period of time which he himself gave as a sign. 
he would be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights and then without that stone ever being removed or that seal broken or that cord or the guards disturbed, that body is out of there. Zip, zap, gone! Amen! The Lord Jesus Christ literally burst the prison house of death wide open. Oh, grave, where is thy victory? It's not there. Not there for those who put their faith in him. Nothing to fear about the grave. You can put your body at rest in the grave confidently knowing that you're present with the Lord and eat. don't aren't you glad we have a Savior who is even concerned about our flesh bodies? Not just our souls, but us, our bodies will come out of their graves one day. The castle of the dead is conquered. And this is why the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ is such good news. It's part of the good news. The grave is no longer a threat to those who have put their faith in the one who is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the absolute confidence that we can have in the testimony that you have provided for us in your holy word about the gospel message that you've given to us through your four chosen witnesses. How we praise you for your loving assurance that our adoption will be complete when our bodies are redeemed and that in our glorified flesh we will see you and we will see one another and these bodies will be perfect as the resurrected body of your son was perfect and glorious and released from all of its earthly limitations. We are grateful that the Lord Jesus has provided For us, a salvation that does even care about our flesh. We do thank you, Lord Jesus, for the wonderful gospel. And I would pray that every woman in this room has ears to hear what the Spirit says to her about the truth that Jesus Christ died for her sins. He was buried and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. We pray in his blessed name. Amen.